Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Today's episode of the Other People Podcast is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for people who like art, movies, music, books, uh, it's people who like culture, people who like to ingest culture. If you want to advertise and reach those people, go to litbreaker.com. You can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, etc. Go check it out, litbreaker.com. You can also advertise piecemeal. You can pick which sites you want to advertise on. It's very user-friendly. Check it out, litbreaker.com. This is an advertising network for culture vultures. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening over here. This is a show that I made with some help from another person. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to uh, be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I have a wonderful uh, guest today. Her name is Celeste Ng. Her debut novel, Everything I Never Told You, is out there now from Penguin. Uh, you're going to get to hear she and I uh, go back and forth in just a second. We had a good talk. Uh, it's October. It's Halloween. I have uh, or Halloween season. I have a young child. She's very into it. Very into it. That's what's happening over here. It's like a, we're at a costume a day at this point. <laughs> like this morning, she went to school as a witch. The day before, it was a butterfly. Somehow, my wife keeps producing costumes for our child, which I can't quite figure out. But they're just there's an endless supply of costumes. My daughter. Uh, is so enthused about co you know costumes that she wears a new one to school every day. And meanwhile, my wife and I have been invited to a party in a couple of weeks, and a costume is required. And I have a problem with this as a grown man. Like, these are friends of ours. We're not allowed in the door unless we wear a costume, says the invitation. And the costume is a, it's a theme party. We have to be dressed like somebody from our favorite music video. So that's annoying. And I mean, we love our friends, but I just, you know, now I got to figure this out. It stresses me out. I don't have a cl you know, closet full of costumes. I can barely figure out what to wear. 
Like a t-shirt and jeans freaks me out. <laughs> Let alone trying to figure out how to dress like somebody from a music video. I have no idea. And I don't have time. And then you show up and you, I just feel uncomfortable. I, you know, and I, you know, give me a couple of drinks. I'm sure I'll find a way to have fun with it. But, you know, like this mandate, these requirements, don't fence me in. I'm a grown man. So there's that. And then, uh, there's Ebola. I'm not going to keep talking about it. This paranoia. What a weird week. What a weird couple of weeks. What a weird year. Uh, I went out last night, you know, and saw some comedy with some friends. That was fun. Down at the comedy store. Uh, that was a nice outing and a nice adult outing. No costumes, no Ebola. There was some Ebola humor though. How can you not? And, uh, you know, the whole thing, the reason I bring it up is that I was on my way home. I had a good time. Uh, I had some laughs. I was, I was driving home and I was thinking to myself, you know, when it comes to the arts, there's nothing that I really revere more than good comedy, good stand up. anyone who can use language to make people laugh, but like a good stand up comedian watching them do their thing. That's awesome to me. And, uh, you know, obviously I love books. Uh, I love music just like anybody, any of the arts at their best, you know, can, uh, be transcendent. But to me, it, comedy is the king people who can do that. And, uh, so I was thinking all of these, you know, really lofty thoughts about comedy and how much I love it. And then it occurred to me, you know, I rarely go out and do that. And I live in Los Angeles, which is like, you know, the fountainhead or one of the fountainheads of uh, American comedy culture on any given night of the week, uh, a great slew of comedians doing their thing on stage. Uh, I could feasibly make arrangements to go out and do this regularly. And yet I don't do it. <laughs> and I was like, what? That's fucked up. You know? So you go from being like comedy is amazing. Uh, it is the King. It is the pinnacle of artistic transcendence. I love it so much. There's nothing I re you know, respect and admire more. And yet I never go see it, even though it's a stone's throw away from where I live. I'm in the center of it, and I never go do it. What the fuck is wrong with me? So I got to fix that, is what I'm saying. It's a, it's a personal improvement project. Need to get out more. Need to make time. It's so depressing. <laughs> and it would be right there. I just like overlook it. It's so easy. It's like a $5 cover charge, sit in a dark room and let, you know, listen to people and they make you laugh. That's a good deal. Hopefully they make you laugh. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty, 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Anyhow, shall we get on with the show? Let's do that. My guest is Celeste Ng. Her debut novel, Everything I Never Told You, is available now from Penguin. Really, really uh, great guest, and I hope you guys enjoy this. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Celeste Ng, and her novel, once more, is called Everything I Never Told You. I am in my little office of my house uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, about halfway between Harvard Square and Porter Square. Um, I think that my office is technically considered the closet of the house. Um, it, where, it, that, that makes sense. I feel like a lot of writers, you just need a small room. You don't need much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big closet. Um, the, the previous owner had sort of uh, put in an extra wall to wall off this little space to be his office, and so now it's my office, and it's got this built-in corkboard, which is kind of nice. Um, but very, very, I believe, very, very Proustian, isn't that? A little bit, yeah. It's not quite big enough to block out sound, unfortunately, but um, it's, I think, technically considered by the city of Cambridge to be a closet, um, but it's uh, just big enough to hold a desk, and it's got a window in it where I can look out into my neighbor's yard and spy on what she's doing. and <laughs> What is she look doing? At, she uh, right now she's not there, uh, but very recently she was cleaning up a big branch of a cottonwood tree that fell down during a windstorm that we had uh, about the size of her yard. Fortunately, fell into her yard and not onto my house. So, oh. yeah, um, our neighborhood seems to be... Uh, I think the tree people come out here once every couple weeks to the point where the tree men who came to her yard to take care of this issue, I recognized them. Um, I think there's just enough trees of a certain age in this area that they're all starting to fall down now. Oh God, that's kind of sad. I love big. It, old, I like I actually really do love big old trees. <laughs> I do too, and it's sort of depressing that like there is a maximum age for these trees. Like they have reached, they've taken as much strain as they can, and they have just about had it. So anytime a storm comes up, another one of them caves in. Um, it's just like the tree equivalent, I guess, of when people get elderly and start reading the obituaries because they just they just they know that every week someone they know is going to be listed in there. It's like that's what happens. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. But I mean, trees have lifespans. You just think that like usually trees have lifespans that expand, you know, extend well beyond the human lifespan. So it's not going to be an issue for you to have to watch trees die in mass. <laughs> But apparently you live on a street where that's happening. Right. We just, you know, I happen to be in the generation, you know, however long this tree has been here, that I'm catching it at the end of its life cycle. Yeah. Um, so in Cambridge, is like you went to Harvard. So you I did, yes. Sort I of like you moved back to your college town. I did. Um, it's sort of funny that, you know, graduated from college and then went away, and then 10 years later I'm basically back in the exact same place I was in before. <laughs> Um, even more so for my husband, who actually works at Harvard, and so I was teasing him. I'm like, "Yep, you ended up exactly where you were before." Is he? Wait, is he? He went to Harvard, and now he's teaching there. 
Uh, he yeah he works he works for the uh, general counsel's office. He's a lawyer. Um, but we but we met at at Harvard and liked it and went away to grad school and then decided that we missed it enough to move back to Cambridge. You liked it, okay? Because I had like I've I've had conversations with multiple people in this show about Boston and Harvard and Cambridge and all of it and. Uh, I've only been there once for a few days. Really liked it, but I've had lots of people bag on Boston, and I. Don't well, get I, it. I should, yeah, I should clarify that it's not it was not Harvard that drew us back. It was just sort of the city of Boston. Um, we both like it on the East Coast. Uh, I don't know why. My sister used to tell me even before I moved out here that I needed to move to the East Coast because she said I talked too fast, and so clearly that was a sign that I needed to be on the East Coast where everybody talked as fast as I did. Um, it's something about Boston, I think, is that it's, uh, it's a real city, but it is a small city. Um, and it's, it's small enough that you can kind of get to know it in a way that I never feel that, you know, I, one of the things I love about New York is that I feel like there will always be tons and tons of new parts of New York that I will never know and that I will just happen to discover. And Boston is a lot more compact, and that's one of the things that I like about it. Yeah, people have been t- people in my life uh, on multiple occasions have told me that I need I should live in New York. I have people just tell me like you need to move to New York. You should be in New York, and I, I've never done it. Instead, I'm on the uh, the entirely opposite side of it. I was gonna say you're <laughs> you're almost as far from New York. Do you ever feel the impulse to move to New York? Uh, I mean, I think it would be fun to do it, but I, I'm sort of a baby about it. Like I would only want to do it if I was like really rich. That's why I think New York would be perfect. I lived in New York for one summer, and it was great. You know, we were in grad school, and we were living on basically no money, and we had pretty much nothing to eat. Um, And I feel like if you lived in New York and you had unlimited money so you could have a really nice house and you could get away from people and you could have a car that could be brought around to you when you need it, you could have groceries delivered to your house, it would be awesome. Right, right. I mean, and and it's like... I mean, I'm not... I don't need to live like Michael Bloomberg, but it's like just the baseline, like decent quality of living seems super expensive not that los angeles is cheap but i feel like in los angeles you can get more for your money you know you can it's it's, it's more comfortable to be uh, poor in los angeles than it is in a place like new york i think that's right i mean you can get a little bit more space and it's also you know it's not as cold and it's like you said it's just a little bit more comfortable um yeah so but you know who knows but maybe like if this podcast blows up and i build an empire (laughs) That's right. You, I, I could return to New York. I could go to New York, like uh, you know, triumphantly as a conqueror. You could, hero. you could live like Michael Bloomberg. I could, and you know what? I should. I feel like that uh, that should happen. So, if anyone out there is listening, who uh, wants to uh, actualize that for me, please email me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you should actually set your sights higher and build a tower and just put like Lusty Tower on it in really, really big letters. You know, <laughs> just other people on the ta- the other people tower. In- that would actually be really great. I think that that would actually be like a big sort of like cultural statement, which would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I'm always, I, I like I tend to be fascinated by uh, you know what gets put up on buildings and. Just that, you know, like when you look at a building and the the company that owns, I guess, the majority of the floors or who has decided to pay for its logo and name to be put on, you know, on the outside of the building, um, like that for some reason, and I guess it depends on who's doing it, but that has always fascinated me. And I'm thinking in particular of Larry Flint here in Los Angeles, the (laughs) publisher of Hustler. Yeah. Because he's got this big, tall, you know, tall office building in uh, West Hollywood that just, you know, used to say Larry Flint Publications on it. I think it's been amended since then. But, um, you know, I mean, if you have 10 floors, do you want everyone to know it's your tower? I guess it's it's sort of like an ego thing. or I think it is an ego thing. I was thinking about, I mean, it's the same sort of thing, like, if you think about the naming rights of stadiums or the naming rights even of schools. Like, it was just in the news recently that Harvard 
sold the naming rights to the School of Public Health. Um, and it's kind of cool because the people who bought it uh, are actually, it's like a Hong Kong like billionaire. Um, and I went, oh, there's not a lot of Asian people with their names on buildings. But it's funny to say you're now going to go to the so-and-so School of Harvard Public Health. Sort of like it seems funny to me to say, you're going to Quicken Loans Arena. It depresses me. I mean, like, you know, it's the David Foster Wallace thing. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. You know, so it's, like it's, they, it's depressing. Like, sometimes it works out where it sort of sounds cool, but Quicken Loans Arena is just depressing. Quicken Loans Arena is just sad. I mean, so I grew up in Cleveland, and that's just sort of a um, – it's a sore spot for me because I think, you know – I mean, if you think about it before, like, gunned was somebody's name too, right? But that at least sounds like the name of a, of a stadium. It's supposed to Quicken Loans, which clearly is – a corporation, and in fact, a corporation that you know, Cleveland got hit pretty hard in the recession. Quicken Loans was not a nice reminder of what was going on in the city, and it does—it reminds me of the year of the Depends undergarment, you know. Yeah, right, exactly. So Cleveland, um, you Cleveland. know, yeah, it's got like a lovable loser status as an as an American city. I feel like it's you know, like you said, it had a hard—it's had a hard time in re- in recent history because of. Uh, the Great Recession and whatnot, but its sports teams don't tend to win. (laughs) That is the kindest way I have ever put that. (laughs) I've ever heard that put. (laughs) But, but hey, but we should say as a a caveat that LeBron James is now a Cleveland Cavalier. I think things are going to change in basketball. You know what? It's really funny because I remember I saw him kind of come up, and I watched all this from afar because I wasn't living in, we haven't lived in Cleveland since I was in high school, but I think of it as my hometown. Um, and I saw him, you know, get drafted and come to the Cavs and go through Cavs. I saw him leave in the decision. I, you know, I knew people who burned his jersey. You know, <laughs> you I did. saw. The, you knew, the, actually, in, like, friends of yours burned his jersey. Not friends of mine, friends of my cousins. Uh, and she thought they were just stupid. She was, this is a perfectly good shirt. Why are you burning it? <laughs> Um, she's very practical, but yeah, I mean, and then I, you know, I saw the, the infamous letter to him and then, you know, now I've seen him sort of come back and it's interesting that I, I've been waiting to see how he's going to be received. And I think it's, I think it's going to be good. I think he's going to be actually welcome. He has been so far and I think it's actually going to make a difference. Um, no, I mean, it's like, well, two things, like, first of all, uh, I don't think he's a bad guy. There are a lot of bad guys and, and uh, dumb people in sports and people sort of deserving of scorn. Like he made one mistake, not to get not to get off on too big of a sports tangent because I know I'm going to alienate like 85 percent of my literary audience. Well, I'm with you right now. <laughs> yeah, like, but listen, you know, like uh, LeBron James made one bad public relations move with the decision. And he and he copped to it. He admitted that he screwed it up. And then from there, like, when has he not been a model citizen? The second thing I'll say, and I think people deserve to be forgiven. He was what? He was like twenty five years old. Yeah, sort of he was like twenty five, and that's the thing. I mean, it was really it wasn't a character decision. It was sort of like bad judgment because he was twenty something years old, and he owned up to it, which I feel like is actually kind of unusually unusually honorable. Yes, yes. <laughs> Very few people actually say, I was immature. Yes. I made a mistake. I want to make it right and then do it. And then also he forgave the owner who like unleashed that like, you know. Uh, Angry comic fans uh, rant. Yeah, yeah. Like so for people listening who don't have context, when LeBron James left Cleveland to go to Miami, the owner of the Cleveland basketball team uh, posted on the Cleveland Cavaliers website a, a scathing letter about LeBron James, but the letter was in Comic Sans font. And it was a very angry letter saying, you know, we will win a ring before you ever win one, you know, to win the championship, which was just, everybody knew it was just kind of goofy. It was sort of like, it was like the messiest public breakup on both sides. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know? and then, Yeah, and so... Like all of that aside, so now he's back, and you know he had the and LeBron had the decency to say, "Hey, well, you know, uh, 
let, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, let's forgive and forget. And he like shook hands and made nice with the owner, and he returned to the Cleveland basketball team. The other thing that I will say about LeBron um, on the human level, because I'm a big LeBron fan, as I think like you can probably guess, but if anyone should be an asshole, it's him. Like, yeah. This is a guy who grew up without his father, who uh, has gotten his ass kissed since he was 12 years old, who had $100 million when he was 18. Mm-hmm. Um, like He's turned out to be such a good guy, and he's a great team player. He's not like like you read about Michael Jordan – by contrast, who as a teammate was like, you know, kind of psychopathically competitive. And, and he's not, yeah. And LeBron is not, by all reports, is not like that, which is right. kind of amazing, actually. It's, you know, exactly. Like, I'm, it's amazing that he turned out so great, and uh, I'm a fan. So to get back to Cleveland, you grew up um, suburban Cleveland uh, with all, I mean, well, like, I don't know exactly what your age is, but. Um, I guess the, the Bernie Kosar years was when you were, what, just born or something? Uh, yeah, I wasn't in Cleveland then, actually, because I, I was born in Pittsburgh, and I moved to Cleveland uh, when I was 10, so I ended up just about 1990. Um, so, yeah, listeners out there can do math. Okay. Um, but, yeah, so I was in Cleveland um, during the years when the Indians were good, when they went back to the World Series, but I was also there when the Browns left, um, oh, when Jacobs Field was built, Municipal Stadium was torn down. So, you know, kind of, kind of an interesting era in in, in Cleveland history, and and so Rust Belt towns, though Pittsburgh and Cleveland, like what did your fo- what did your folks do? <laughs> I don't know how they ended up in the Rust Belt. Both of my parents were scientists. Uh, my mother is a chemist. Uh, she taught chemistry and did research at Cleveland State University, um, and is now retired. Um, my dad was a physicist, and so when we lived in Pittsburgh, he worked for this. Bureau of the Government that's now, I think, been absorbed into the Bureau of the Interior called Bureau of Mines, where basically he studied explosions. And so we have these great home videos of, you know, some parts of his work involved him setting off very large explosions so that he could, you know, study them and monitor them. So we have these great videos of him standing there, like, setting off these huge explosions, and they're all silent. They're on, like, Super 8 film. Um, but where, and then, like, where was he? Is that out in some, what, a coal mine or something? Or? I think so. It was, it was outside of Pittsburgh, and so it was kind of, you know, mining territory. Everybody was sort of working the steel mills or, or mines. Um, and the government had this bureau, and he worked there kind of studying combustion and explosions. Um, like, like how do we how do we blow up this mountain to mine? Or like- I, you know, I when I was a kid, I always thought it was mines, kind of like the um, like the Seven Dwarves kind of mines. Which it, it is, but it also has to do with sort of like explosions, like that kind of mines. Um, so I think it was partly like if we need to explode things, how do we do it safely? And if we don't want things to explode, how do we keep them from exploding? <laughs> um, which I guess are just flip sides of the same question. So that's that is about the extent of the of what I understand about my dad's work there. And then we went to Cleveland because he got a job working at NASA. There's actually a NASA research center um, on the west side of Cleveland, and he got a job working there. But, like um, studying explosions for NASA, or yeah, basically like the same sort of like combustion sorts of things. Um, Interesting. And uh, he, but he and my mother just somehow always lived in the Rust Belt. Even before I was born, they um, they lived in Indiana. They lived in um, Chicago, which I guess is not exactly the Rust Belt. But then you know they came to Pittsburgh, and then they went to Cleveland. It's a good place to raise a family. It's it was a really nice place. Um, like the the suburbs of Cleveland are actually a really kind of nice place to grow up. Yeah, yeah. So you had a good time of it. I did. Um, I grew up in a suburb called Shaker Heights, um, which is a funny little place right on the east side of Cleveland. Um, 
known for being very racially integrated, which it is, um, certainly not, you know, perfect racial utopia, but a, a place where race was at least part of the conversation and where there were a good number of people of color, um, whereas a lot of Cleveland is not quite so integrated. And so that was part of why my parents really wanted to move there. Okay. So, okay. So you grew up because like your parent and you're Chinese American? Yes. First so, generation. First, your first generation, that means your parents came over? Yeah. My parents came over, um, when they were in their 20s, like my dad came over for after getting his uh, bachelor's degree, he came over for school and then my mom came over with him. Okay. And then uh, do you have siblings? I do. I have one sister who is 11 years older than I am. Okay. And she also was born here. All right. So, and your parents are both scientists and, and two scientists have produced a literary artist. <laughs> <laughs> they did. They also produced an engineer who's my sister. So um, I am definitely a little bit of an outlier in the family. Um, Although it's it's funny, I mean, two things about that. One is that um, I think having been raised by scientists and in sort of a practically minded, scientifically minded family, I think that actually has sort of shaped and helped my writing. Um, that I think about writing in terms of sort of just figuring out how the world works, which is sort of what my parents do. You know, they kind of fiddle with it. And my dad was always a sort of what if, and he'd go, hmm. What if I what if I did this or what if I poke this or what if I add just a little bit more hydrogen? You know, let's let's see if it explodes then. Um, and I feel in some ways that's sort of what I do on the page is I go, well, what if I add just a little more tribulation to this character's life? At what point is this character going to combust? Um, this this so that, also this all sounds eminently logical. Uh, so my, <laughs> approach, that, my approach is like just sitting there like weeping softly. <laughs> That's also an approach. This is this is what happens apparently when scientists get together and create a child who wants to be a writer. As I said, they're going well. Maybe if I, you know, ratchet up the tension, or maybe if I just, you know, put these two people together in a scene, they're just going to drive each other crazy, and that'll make for an interesting story. Um, the other thing that I'm learning, though, is that actually, despite the sort of scientific background of my family, like, I think in my extended family, I've got like seven different engineers. Um, a lot of engineers. Um, I'm finding out actually that back in my family history, there are some people who did have like literary language kind of leanings. Um, my mother told me that she wanted to buy a copy of my book for her second cousin's great aunt or something like that, some you know distant relative, who she says was is the the translator of Peanuts comics into Chinese and the only person who does that. Um, and that's, I, a, that's an interesting job. I know. I didn't. I didn't know that, and I, I have no idea how well peanuts would translate into Chinese. Um, it's just sort of an interesting concept to think about how that would that would work. <laughs> Whether it would st would it still be funny? Yeah, you want to so, you want to hear something funny? Speaking of the peanuts, uh, yeah. My daughter. What was I? I was. I got like a. My, I have a four year old, and I get. We were reading Charlie Brown's The Great Pumpkin. You know the great, yeah. that that story, like the famous peanut story, and so yeah, yeah. <clears throat> anyway. I get the book for her. We're reading the book before bed, and then all the ki you know all the peanuts characters, or most of them, are under uh, bed sheets. They're dressed as ghosts for Halloween. Right, right, yeah. And one like one of you know Peppermint Patty's one of them, and someone in the in the book says her name, and but you don't you can't see her. Right. And so uh, my daughter's like, "Well, who's Peppermint Patty? Who's Peppermint Patty?" And I'm like, "Well, I'll, you know." And so I get the iPad out. We're lying there in the dark, <laughs> and I go to Google Images, and I'm like, "We got to satisfy this kid's curiosity, or she's never going to let go of it." So. I Google Peppermint Patty, 
And like the first thing that comes up or one of the first images that comes up, because I'm sitting there like flicking through, you know, images of Peppermint Patty. And this is the thing when I have a four-year-old too. And when they ask you a question, you're like, I'm going to answer this. You then suddenly have to find the answer while they're watching you and it adds this pressure. <laughs> yes, yes. So, but I mean, like even better is that I start flicking in the dark through all these Peppermint Patty photos, not knowing that there is like a pretty strong meme online of uh, Peppermint Patty being a lesbian and who's... <laughs> Who's the other one? Who's the one? Oh, Marcy. Them? Marcy. So there's all this like, like animated peppermint patty and Marcy porn. Where oh like, no! They're like scissoring and like. You know, like oh god! And so Evan, and my, my daughter's like, Daddy, why are they fighting? I'm like, and this is this uh, is where you, I don't know. I'm like, honey, I don't know what's going on. Like you just shut the iPad, just like okay, you've seen her enough. Yeah, you just have. You fa- I think feigning ignorance is the only way to resolve. And you're like, why is that happening? You're like. I don't know. He's no like, what idea. is that? I, I have no idea. Let's look over here. Yeah. So anyway, oh. anyway the peanuts. But uh, you, so you have some artistic strain in your family. Yeah. I mean, so, and I didn't, I didn't know this until pretty recently. I, uh, my mom, when she was sort of in like junior high school and high school, wrote a column for this sort of um, English language. It was like a teen newspaper that was run, I think, by like the South China Post or whatever the English language paper was. And she had sort of a, just a little essay column and she'd run it every week or so. And I still have those. Um, and that was actually how she met my dad. Um, she had like people would write, teens would write into her and she'd sort of form pen pal relationships. And one said, hey, you should meet my friend. And that was my dad. Um, and I, I learned also that I think my great grandfather wrote uh, the first English language grammar book for, you know, Chinese speakers, something like that. You know, like there are these little things that my mom will sort of randomly throw into conversation. She'll literally go, oh, by the way, I never told you that, blah, blah, blah. And then she'll just go back to talking about whatever she was talking before. And I go, wait, wait, questions, questions. Yeah. But wait, that's um, a, you don't sound like as much of an outlier as you might initially seem to be, is what you're that's saying. That's what I'm starting to think. I mean, that there's always been sort of an interest in, in, in language. And even, I mean, even my parents sort of being scientists, we think of science and writing or, you know, science and books as being sort of like diametrically opposed. But they always were huge readers. They always, um, they always loved reading. They always bought me books. Um, our house was basically overflowing. And, I mean, they read fiction, too, Um I was surprised to learn from some of my dad's high school friends that he knew lots of poetry, you know, when, from when they had studied it back in high school, like, you know, Elegy in a Country Courtyard, like he knew that poem. Um, what is that? Why do I, do I, should I know I that? Think, <laughs> I think it's like Thomas Gray. Like, it, they mentioned it to me, and I went, that vaguely takes me back to my British literature course. Let me look it up. But right. um, one of the, um, after my father passed away, one of his friends wrote to me and said, you know, I just emailed him a couple of days ago trying to remember what this poem was, and your father knew, and this is what it was. And I had to go, I had to go look up the poem because I didn't even remember that poem. So it's, it's, it's funny, you know, it's an easy narrative to say like, oh, I'm totally an outlier, but I'm learning that I'm not totally an outlier, which is kind of nice. Okay. So, and your father passed away, so what, what, uh, what happened? Um, so in, uh, just about 10 years ago, he just, he had a heart attack basically just very unexpectedly and he died suddenly. Um, I was actually going to go home uh, a few days after that, like I'd already had the plane ticket and, um, he just passed away very suddenly and everyone was sort of really surprised. Ugh, that's a bummer. Yeah, it, it sucks. Um, <laughs> you know, it, the sad thing is that, you know, as I get older, I know more and more friends of lots of different ages who lose their parents, and there's pretty much nothing you can say about it other than it really sucks. Yeah. You're never ready. Yeah. No matter how old you are, no matter how old your parents are, whether it happens quickly, whether it happens slowly, 
doesn't matter. Was I don't it, think you're ever risk? Was he at risk? Was he like a, you know, like a heart attack risk or was it totally? No, not really. I mean, he had had high cholesterol, but, it, you know, they didn't really feel that he was, he, he didn't have high blood pressure or anything. So it just seems to be, you know, one of those things that happens is sort of the best description that we ended up getting. And that's not super helpful. But. Yeah, no, isn't that terrible in the medical, in the, in the, like the context of medical stuff where you like, you start to sense like, even the fucking doctors, they have no idea. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, you're just, I mean, even even with cancer, you know, like people, there are people who get cancer because they smoke, you know, two packs a day, but then there are people who get cancer and they had no risk factors. And you just, I don't know why this happens. And even the doctors go, I don't know. Yeah. And it's very, it makes you sort of very existential where at a certain point you just have to accept that this is what happened and that there's no... There's no logic to it that you can see. Well, and there's the, and just that the bad luck exists in the world. Yeah. And sometimes it, you know, it gets you and it gets some people more than others. I mean, like some people have like a, a huge lot of it and some people have really lucky lives and I don't know why. I mean, good people, like good people have bad luck. <laughs> yeah. And it has, that's it. It has, it, it's like not at all sort of like, you know, what is it? Calvinistic where it's like, if you're a good person, good things will happen to you and bad things will not happen to you. It doesn't work that way. No. And it's, yeah, that's a kind of an incredibly depressing thing to think about. Let's dwell on that. Shall we? Let's do, let's do that. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it in terms of, we were talking before about our four-year-olds and, you know, our, our standard mode of explanation to the four-year-old where, you know, like something breaks or something, you know, just something happens and it, it's just one of those things. And he's like, well, why did that happen? And our answer's like, well, sometimes things break. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, that's the best explanation we can come up with. And I'm sort of like, maybe I should come up with something that's less sort of fatalistic. Well, for no, him, you know? I, I wrestle with this. It's like, because I really have, I, I place like a high um, value on honesty with my kids. Yeah. Like not trying to make up fairy stories or you know, disrespect her her intelligence as young as she is. But you also don't want to lay some super heavy burden on a kid who doesn't have the equipment to handle it. That's exactly right. And I feel like that is pretty much what you just said is like all of parenting in a nutshell. It's sort of like trying your best to gauge what your kid can handle and how much of it you should actually tell them. And then it's also like language choice because you, mm-hmm. can, you can sort of, I think you can communicate hard truths to a child as long as you pick the right phrasing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and they can intuit it, but sometimes you know that's a you have to really be able to to kind of modulate, you know. And, yeah. And in the in the moment when like Marcy and Peppermint Patty are scissoring, <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes sometimes you just close the iPad and say, "We'll talk about it later." <laughs> can, can I tell you that I'm very proud right now that I'm going to be in. I hope the, but the an episode of other people in which you talk about Peppermint Patty and Marcy Scissoring. <laughs> it is a, it is a, uh, is, is, is an honor to be that, uh, the person to whom I revealed such a thing, but I, I, I have no idea how the conversation reached that point, but I am like, kind of secretly gleeful that, that somehow we arrived at that destination. <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, I want to ask you a couple more things about your family. Uh, like, first of all, you said your sister is 11 years older. Yes. Okay, so 11-year difference between siblings. Are you guys close now? We are close. We were actually close before. Um, I always, of course, you know, at age 5, 6, 7, 8, thought of myself as being completely equal, and she very kindly sort of treated me very respectfully and would actually talk to me about, you know, a lot of things. I think, you know, 
now that I've gotten older, I realize that a lot of the things that she talked about, I only sort of half understood, of course. Um, but she would tell me about the things that she went to do with her friends, like the movies that they saw, um, you know, what she was thinking about school, what she was doing. And that, I think, made us close. Um, and so we were close even when I was younger. I considered her one of my best friends and still do. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because sometimes you think like, oh, you know, she's 18 and going off to college and you're just, what, seven years old there's a big gap where you're not around each other. And, you know, sometimes it can be hard for siblings to get to know one another, but it doesn't sound like that was the case. No, and it was it was something that was really important to both of my parents that we be close with each other. Um, I remember, so my sister went off to college, and, you know, she was 18 and I was 7, and um, we would call her every week. And this was in an era where long distance was still kind of expensive. But my dad felt it was really important, and so we would call every week, and he would let us talk for as long as we wanted to, which now I realize was a really sort of generous thing, and that was him making sure that we still could keep up a connection even though she was at school. I think that, that really helped. Yeah, that's sweet. And then uh, and she, where did she go off to school? She went to Princeton. Um, and guys, the, what a family. You guys, <laughs> your dad works at NASA. Your mom's like, what, a chemistry professor. She's at Princeton. I mean, it, like it, uh, it's, un, it's an unbelievable. I know. It's, it's sort of embarrassing. And, it, you know, it's the thing that there's a joke around here in Cambridge, you know, that if you say, oh, I went to school in Cambridge, people know you either went to Harvard or MIT. Sort of like when people say, oh, I went to school in Connecticut, a lot of times what they mean is they went to Yale, and they don't want to say it because, it's, you know, it's sort of embarrassing. It's hard to say it and not sound like a tool. Yeah. I think, but if I think if I had done that, I would just be – I'd be wearing it proud. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have like a sweater or a sweatshirt on every day. I'd get a tattoo. <laughs> you just have to put it on your forehead. <laughs> I went to Harvard. <laughs> Um, so, okay, but your parents obviously pushing academics, uh, you know, and, and you know, you, you come from smart people, so the apple doesn't fall far even though you decided to become a writer. Um, and then, you know, when you started, like as a child, were you saying, like, I'm going to be an artist, I want to be a writer, or um, like when did that appear, and then how did your parents behave in re response to that? Like did they have some expectation of you that you would get – like I think some parents like freak out a little bit when their kids go off to college and want to study something as slippery as like uh, creative writing or English just because they can't see the, the career path. You know, exactly. Or, you know, I, now that I'm a parent, too, I kind of see that from the flip side where you go, oh, my God, my child is not going to have a home. You know, my child is not going to be able to eat. There's a certain amount of sort of practical worry. Um, so I really wanted to be a writer from very, very early on. Um, pretty much as early as I can remember, I was making up stories. I was drawing little books and making pictures. I was writing plays, and I was making my cousins perform in them. Um, and they have still not forgiven me for this. Uh, literally, I did a reading in San Francisco where most of my cousins live, and they came to the reading, and one of them referenced it during the Q&A about how I had made them act in these plays that I'd written, you know, <laughs> a, a long time ago. Um, and so I always had that sort of bug, and my parents did actually encourage it. Um, they were really actually kind of proud of it, even if they didn't always say so. They always sort of bought me um, books to read. They gave me a lot of fiction. Um, I think my mom probably bought every book that won the Newbery um, so that I could read it. And um, But I also, from them, or maybe by nature, had a very practical bent, and I had this idea that writing was not something that actual people did for a living, which is kind of true. I've heard that but, a lot. I've heard that a lot from people that, like, you know, before they publish, they've ne like, they never conceived of it as a thing that could be done. Uh, but I, you know, I fall on the opposite side of the spectrum. I had this like antiquated vision of what it would be like. And I had a completely, uh, 
you know, backwards idea of what the business of publishing was like in the year 2004 or whatever, when I, you know, when I was entering the business and <laughs> I thought it was like the old, you know, I thought it was like the 1920s. So I was like, Oh man, this is going to be fantastic. And <laughs> You'll get to go, you know, drink absinthe and yes. be in Paris. <laughs> yeah, I think I think somehow um, I must have like a very strong sort of Victorian influence because I had this idea of sort of like the the like almost like a gentleman scholar. Like you know, you have this other job, but then you're writing these things on the side. And so I always thought of writing as being this thing I was going to do on the side. So at first I was going to be a paleontologist and write books on the side. That was when I was about five. Um, and in my dinosaur phase, and then I was going to be an astronaut and write books on the side, and then I became slightly more practical, and I was going to be a journalist and write books on the side. And by the time I got to college and I went to study English, my parents, I think, were a little bit nervous about what I was going to do with an English degree, um, even an English degree from Harvard. And then when I told them that I was going to go and um, get a Master of Fine Arts, my mom on the phone said, okay. And the conversation was kind of over. You know, we talked about other things. And then I got an email from her about two days later that said, I have talked to my friend who is the chair of the English department here, and he has assured me that a Master of Fine Arts is a real degree, and it does qualify you to teach writing, which she had capitalized with a W, and other artsy stuff, which she had also <laughs> capitalized. And she said, so I feel this is okay. So I think that although, I mean, I think they were disconcerted, but largely because they, it's just something that they didn't know, yeah. you know. It's yeah, just yeah, a, yeah. It's it's so, I mean, it would be almost as if I had decided to go into, I don't know, you know, if I'd gone to culinary school or if I'd gone into like Germanic studies or anything that they just sort of didn't know about. They, I think they were just sort of worried about whether I would, you know, be able to find a job. And once they, they sort of felt like, okay, I, I think you can make a living in some way doing something you know, teaching whatever it is they felt a lot better about it yeah okay so here's where i and i totally follow you because my folks are sort of the same way i, I don't I'm, I'm an outlier in my family but uh when i think about it from a parent perspective like there's a very you know you can't predict what your kid is going to be like maybe my daughter will be exactly like me maybe you said you have a son I do have a son, yeah. Okay, so maybe your son will be exactly like you. We just don't know. But right. like, let's say, uh, you know, fast forward several years and uh, the kids are 18, 19, 20, they're in college, and you start to see um, their tendencies and what they're majoring in, and, and you can kind of get an idea of the road that they're going to go. Like if my daughter somehow <laughs> decides like she wants to be like a doctor, like she's got some sort of medical thing, uh, like I think as a parent, even if the thing that your kid is interested in isn't what you are interested in, the onus is on you to, to research a little bit. Like, why not dig in and find out? Like, what about medical school? Talk to your friends who are doctors. Like, so you can advise your kid. Like, you, yeah. Are you going to do that? You know, I don't. I don't think I got. Um, you know, my parents were just sort of like, "What are you going to do? Like, maybe get a master's and <laughs> meet some writers." But it was never like go to. It was, it was never like go to New York. You know, like. Yeah, you have to go to New York, or we're not going to let you do this. Or you know, be near publishing, meet some people. Like, uh, I sort of had to really figure it out on my own. And that's not to—I don't mean to knock them too much because they were great and they were—they've always been so supportive. But uh, it would have been like I just didn't have a mentor, you know. I don't yeah, I, I feel almost like the analog. There's there's almost an analog in terms of geography. It's sort of like you know, especially if you grow up in like a suburb or a small town, and then you're like, I'm going to move to Hollywood. And they, they, or you go, I'm going to move to England. And they're like, we don't know anyone in England. 
Well, we can learn a little bit about England. Well, what do we know? Okay, well, we, I mean, we have a friend in France. I mean, that's sort of, that's closer to England than we are. So they're like, you have to make sure to look up this person in France. You know, sort of like there's this idea that they're going to go as far as they can, but that there's there's a, a, a comfort zone that it's, I think it's really hard to step out of. And I agree with you. I think as the parent, you have to try as hard as you can to, you know, go to England, I guess, in this tortured yeah. metaphor that I'm making, you know, but to, to find out what it's like, get a guidebook right. and see what it is. But, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, maybe maybe I think, they just don't have time. Maybe they were just busy. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I feel like part of it has to do almost with fear. Um, that, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like there, I feel a lot of anxiety and fear as a parent because I, I worry about not doing a good job, well, sure. you know, Um, And so I feel like if you're a good parent, you should have at least you should have a pretty healthy measure of self-doubt. But I think there's so much fear where you're like, well, maybe you should just stay at home. Like if you stay close to home, everything will be safe. Right. It's hard for you to encourage your kid to go, you know, like to Zimbabwe or like Japan if if you live in the United States. And that's really far away, even if that might be great for them. It's hard for you as a parent, I think, to kind of let go and let them go that far away. And no, maybe if, I, if, if my daughter leaves and goes abroad, like I'm following her, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll sell I'll sell everything and just move to Zimbabwe. But and see, that's kind of interesting. So, you know, if she decides to like be a doctor, then like maybe you'll be like, hey, I'm going to research medicine. Right. Or maybe she decides to become like a postmodern dancer and you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to study up on that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And like I just I think you need to know the terrain that your kid is getting ready to traverse as well as you can, even if it's not your thing. Uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, and I think that in some ways is sort of what allows you to keep having a conversation and keep your relationship sort of developing. Because when your kid goes out on the world on their own, if they're starting a field and you know nothing about it, then a lot of your relationship, you can't talk about what's going on in your life. You know, if you have no idea what it's like to be in a residency, right? Or if you have no idea what it's like to, I don't know, what did I say, be a postmodern dancer? Yeah. Actually, actually I know lots about that, but only from a recreational basis. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Um, It's it's actually probably frightening to people listening to imagine me dancing in any capacity. But um, when it comes to your own education, you know, you go to Harvard, you, you major in English, correct? Yes. And at this point, you're pretty set on your track. Are you thinking, like, I want to write books, I'm going to find a way, I'm going to teach, I'm going to, you know, what were you, how were you conceptualizing it in your mind? I was still pretty heavily in denial at that point, I think. Um, I was still very much in the frame of, like, well, I kind of want to write books, but, like, that's not a thing that anyone actually ever does. And so I had in mind that I was going to go into publishing and be a book editor, and I did that. I um, I edited travel guides while I was at Harvard, um, sort of like a student agency where you get to the Let's Go Travel Agency where you get to edit or you get to travel, and I chose the editing side. Um, and so I did that, and I got you know internships in publishing, and after graduation, I got a job at a textbook publisher. And then it was at that point that I realized that this was not for me. Um, so all the time that I was in school, I was writing by myself, but I didn't actually think that this was anything that I could take seriously. And so I didn't really ever give myself credit for trying to do that. Um, it just, it was like a hobby, I guess. Right. And then eventually? Out of desperation, I would say, um, <laughs> being, you know, just the job was, the publishing job I got was just not for me. Um, it was a very, it was an entry level job. I remember a lot of days where my job was to 
unstaple various pages of a, of a like 600 page manuscript, you know, and it was just sort of sad. Um, and I think a lot of jobs are like that, but a, um, sort of a mentor that I had had who'd been one of my TAs basically kind of gave me a kick in the pants and said, look, if you want to write, why don't you basically like put your money where your mouth is and try doing that first? And I kind of went, okay, I'm going to do that because what do I have to lose other than my job taking staples out of this manuscript? Um, and so I went and I wrote some stories and I applied to some programs and I was fortunate enough to get in. So really, um, I guess what I'm saying is desperation can be a powerful motivator yeah. in terms of no. you following your dreams. No, I, I talk about this all the time. I'm like, uh, I just had a conversation with a friend the other day about you know, getting work done and people having a hard time getting creative work done, getting words on the page, dealing with block or whatever. Um, you know, I'm like one of the questions I always ask people is like, well, what's your financial situation? <laughs> um, because I'm like, if you're really up against it financially, I've never heard somebody in that situation talk about block. I mean, they might, yeah. be, they might be overtired. They might have trouble finding time to do the work because they're scrambling to make money. But it's never like, I just don't know what to say. It's like yeah. sometimes that's a function of just being too comfortable. I think that's, yeah, I think that's it. Um, I think that fear and discomfort are really powerful motivators, too. Like, <laughs> you, Well, people that I know who are, for example, like freelance writers or who are journalists and they are used to writing to a deadline, they may say at the end, yeah, I wasn't super thrilled with how this came out, but they never don't get it done because right. they have to. Um, right. A friend of mine just started a low-residency MSA program, and she has to send something to her advisor every three weeks. And she said, so every three weeks I'm writing a new story. And she said, I didn't think that I could do that. And she said, I'm actually not writing it in three weeks because I spend the first week going, la-di-da, let me think of ideas. And then the second week writing a little bit and going, oh, okay, I got it right. And then the third week going, oh, shit, I have to finish this. <laughs> um, and that's it. It's sort of, you know, whatever kind of consequences you see coming down the line, whether it's not making rent or whether it's somebody yelling at you, um, somehow that's how the work gets done a lot of the time. So the answer for anyone out there dealing with block is to invite more stress and chaos into your life and, and eventually. <laughs> yes. I had I had an idea for a while. I used to say that what I needed in order to be more productive was I should just hire someone like with like meals and beer to like stand behind my chair with a stick and just smack me in the head if I stopped working. And then a friend pointed out that I could probably find people to do that on Craigslist for free. <laughs> and that kind of freaked me out. So now I just imagine the person there. Yeah, that's you know, and sometimes we're we're writers. Our imaginations are powerful. That's right. You know, sometimes more powerful than the actual person standing there with a stick. Well, then I saw this a long time ago. There was this movie that came out, and I have no idea why I went to see it. It had, I think it's called Stranger Than Fiction. It had Will Ferrell in it. And, That's and a good movie. I enjoyed it. Was, that movie. I actually enjoyed it, but I, I don't know what, what brought me to go see it. But the part of it that I love was that the idea that um, Emma Thompson is the struggling writer, right? And yeah. uh, Will Ferrell is her character, as it turns out. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. Um and uh, Emma Thompson is really struggling with block, and I love the idea that her publisher sent Queen Latifah to be like an enforcer, <laughs> to follow her around and make her work. And yes. I went, yes, I need Queen Latifah to come and make she, me work. Yeah, I have a Queen Latifah story. Really? Uh, yeah, a friend of mine is a vet. She's a veterinarian in uh, Los Angeles, or she was. And Queen Latifah came into the veterinarian's office at like, because she was working the night shift, like the emergency shift, and Queen Latifah came in with like her three dogs or whatever. She had multiple dogs, if I remember correctly, at like two in the morning, and it was clear that she had been like hosting a party at her house, and she's like, my dogs are on mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Queen Latifah's dogs ate mushrooms. I, I'm, 
I'm willing to vouch for that story to like the 98% mark. I, Wait, I, I, have a, I have a question. Are, were they big dogs or yeah, were they like little yeah. dogs? I think they were big. I don't think Queen Latifah packs little dogs. Yeah, I don't, I don't see her as a little dog kind no. of person. So that just changes the like mental picture that I'm making in my mind. Yeah. So she brought like three tripping dogs into the veterinarian's office. <laughs> <laughs> and might have been tripping herself for all I know, but... It's possible, you know. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's funny too. Like you were, you were talking about Stranger Than Fiction, that movie, uh, which I recall liking. It was Maggie Gyllenhaal and Will Ferrell. Yeah, I actually, I really, that was the first thing I'd seen Maggie Gyllenhaal in. She's like a baker, I think, and I, I actually really liked the movie. It, I don't know why I went to see it because I think I thought it was going to be stupid, and then I actually thought it was sweet. Yeah, no, I liked it. And and the thing that I wanted to say is that when you know it sort of frustrates me is that. Uh, when it comes to Hollywood, and I guess you could say this across a lot of different professions, but um, specifically for writers, did you ever notice that writers, uh, you know, novelists, when they are depicted in uh, cinema, they tend to be depicted in a way that it feels far from reality for me. They're always like these writers who have these beautiful, like, yes. apartments, and like, you know. Large large, apartments. Large, <laughs> yeah, large apartments with big windows and country houses. And it's like, what? who the fuck are these people? Yeah, I was like, where is this like a rent-controlled apartment? <laughs> yeah, um, right. but that's it. I feel like there's, there's sort of two ways that writers get depicted in Hollywood. There's this sort of, um, like, tortured artist kind of, portrayal and then there's the very glamorous portrayal and clearly the glamorous portrayal is not right and the tortured artist part is maybe closer but it's uh it, it seems caricature too it's always like he like likes jazz and he's that's it or you know or he's like you know yeah he likes jazz and, and types on an old school typewriter yes and he's like he's like the you know he's the, the trusted friend he's not going to get the girl he's always like the friend you confide in or, yeah. or vice versa you know it seems that way but um so, okay, so you go to University of Michigan to get your MFA? Yes. And you had a good experience? I had a great time there, actually. Um, I didn't know what to expect from an MFA program going in um, and was still in the stage of going, I'm not really a writer, I don't know what I'm doing. And then I realized that nobody kind of knew what they were doing, and I had it was just a great fit for me. I ended up making a ton of friends that I'm still in touch with, and some of them are still my first readers, um, the professors there were, I had a really fantastic relationship with, like Peter Ho-Davies, who was the director at the time, and Eileen Pollack and Nicholas Del Banco um, are still people that I write to periodically with, like, random late-night questions, and somehow they always respond to me within about five minutes, and I don't understand how they do that. Um, I just, I had a really great time at the program. That's good, and you felt like it was, I mean, it was, you had a great time, and it was beneficial, because that's... It was hugely beneficial for me, yeah, Um it was the first time that I'd actually had anyone say, hey, we think that writing is worth doing, and we think that your writing is worth you taking time on, so why don't you take some time and do that? And that was a really powerful thing. Um, and Ann Arbor is a great place, I think, to be a writer because it's like it's very affordable, it's very compact, and yet there's a lot going on there. Um, there's a lot of bookstores, a lot of cafes. There's a reading, you know, at least one reading pretty much every night of the week. Um and it was sort of a great place to be a student. Um, it really helped me a lot. Okay, so then how do you get to publication? Like how many years ago, how many years between completion of MFA and publication was it for you? Um, I was pretty lucky. Um, I started sending stories out while I was in the program um, with encouragement from professors and friends and met with very little success. And, uh, you know, was getting all kinds of form slip projections. And then... Um, 
was a year after my program finished, so in 2007, I was still in Ann Arbor, and most of my friends had left. Um, and I was there because my husband was finishing law school, and that's a three-year program, so we had an extra year, and I was sticking around, and I was working this job, um, basically doing coding in the library. And um, Wait, you, I spent, you, know, you know how to code? Uh, a, a little bit, yeah. I'm kind of a dork. <laughs> This is not to say that I could do anything super fancy, but um, it was a like it was like a library text preservation project that I think is still going on. And basically, what I had to do was sort of um, like outline the structure of the document in XML without getting too technical about it. I'd be like, this part is a chapter, and like this part is the heading, and this part is a picture. Um, and so I had to do sort of that sort of basic coding. Okay. And I sent out stories, and one day I was working in the library, and the phone rang, and I didn't feel I could answer it because I was at work and I was inside the library and it turned out to be um, an editor accepting my first story. So I think that I just was in the right place at the right time. And who was the, honestly, who was the editor? Uh, it was Susan uh, Susan Hahn from Triquarterly, which at the time was still a print journal. Now it's changed to be an online um, student edited journal, but at the time she was the editor of it. And you get this call and, and what do you say? Uh, well, I got the vo- I got a voicemail because I, I I I was such a goody two shoes. It still am kind of a goody two shoes, and I didn't answer the phone because I was in the library and I was at work and I wasn't supposed to be answering the phone. So I like waited until it was like time for me to take a break, and then I like went outside and listened to the voicemail. And I was like, oh my god, this is so exciting! I guess I have to call her back. Um, and then I think I called her back and sort of babbled incoherently for a while, and she still took the story. <laughs> well, that must be that's a, a testament to how good of a story it was, right? I think it was a testament to her um, being very kind and very patient. Um, and But I like to think maybe I'm not the only one who gets really giddy when someone out there actually says, I like what you're doing. Oh, please, let alone- everyone, everyone, everyone. Like, I mean, I mean, maybe it gets old for somebody who has published like 15 books. And, no. you think so? I hope it doesn't because I would like to think that there's nobody out there who's writing anything, even someone, you know, who had super success. I don't know, like – I, I hope that J.K. Rowling still likes it when people say, hey, I love Harry Potter, even though, you know, they're the billionth person to have said that. I hope she still feels good about that. Yeah, I mean, it's like, because this is the thing. You see somebody, uh, you know, famous or a writer, you go to some reading, and I feel like people are often reticent to say something as simple as, hey, you know what, I really love your work. Yeah. Um, or your passings, like, like, I always think this in Los Angeles, you pass some celebrity on the street they were in a movie you liked. I always want to be like, oh, you know, I love that movie, but I don't want to bother them. I, I, I can't talk to, you know, I'm not the guy that's going to say anything. So uh, there's a part of me, though, that thinks, like, that's not so bad. They probably wish they heard more of that because people are too... It's, it's probably true, but see, I always, I don't want to be, like, that person, right? Right, right. Like, me neither. Right, I mean, as evidenced by the fact that, like, before we started talking, I was like, can I tell you before you record how much I love the nervous breakdown? You know, like... And, and that's the thing. It's like if you don't want to be like 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 a fanboy, right? Like, but probably people love that. Like, I, you know, I'm I'm a pretty new writer, and so the few times that people said to me, "Hey, I really liked the story you read," or "I really liked this thing that you said or did," or "I really liked even this little piece you read," it, it's it's rewarding. I mean, it. I think as, as a writer, you often feel like you're just kind of sending these shouts out into like this vacuum. And it's just really nice when after, even after a long time, there's like one little echo of something coming back. It's that's. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think most people love it every time it happens because most people it doesn't happen that often. Maybe if you're getting it like 500 times a day, you're like, okay, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that 
make it happen because I feel like that's an amount of ego that you shouldn't have. If you have that much ego, you shouldn't be writing. <laughs> yeah, well, and okay. So, but it, it does bring up an interesting like question, more broadly speaking, about complimenting people because I've had mm-hmm. the, I've had this thought before where, you know, you see somebody walking down the street, and like I think back to I guess maybe when I was single, but I, you'd see like a really pretty woman, uh, or I would see a really pretty woman, and I would want to say like, God, you look great. <laughs> But I wouldn't do it, obviously, because I don't want to be creepy or like, yeah. <laughs> who, who doesn't want to hear that? they? And, and I don't mean catcalling because I think there's a difference. I mean, like genuinely paying someone a compliment. And also it should be said, like, now that I'm a married man, like you see anybody and they look good, male or female, like, God, you look really good. No one ever says that in, yeah. in like a genuine way. It's sort of a shame that we don't compliment one another more often because who doesn't love a compliment? And I mean a sincere compliment that doesn't come from like a you know, quasi dark place of like right, with no ulterior motive. Yes. Yes. I think that's it. Like, I think if we could get rid of the, the cat calling and the ones that come with ulterior motives, it would be so much easier to take the straight compliments, you know? So like women compliment each other all the time. I think it's not always sincere, but they do, you know, they do it, but it's true. Like, I think there are very few men that I know who could give me a compliment that I would take sincerely and not be looking for the motivation you know like i dropped my son off at preschool the other day and i was walking down the street to go work at a cafe and this man who i will add was drinking a beer at 8 30 in the morning <laughs> so it was already not off to a good start said to me coffee and i said yeah i'm thinking about it and he said cream no sugar because you're sweet enough and i went great and i kind of kept going and i think he sincerely thought that he was going to make my day yeah. You know, but yeah. I don't think, I don't know that that was, it's, it's so easy way, to get to an icky place. Well, yeah. Is there a way? Cause like the thing too, is that like you talk about ulterior motive and like, let's say there's a single man and then he says to a single woman, God, you look great. And like in passing, like you look great today. You got to go <laughs> like, that's not good. You can't do that. No, it's not good. No. Okay. Because if some woman said that to me, I'd be like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, if she, if she said to you, oh, you know, I really like your tie, or that's a nice shirt. Yeah, maybe if you get specific. But let's, but you got to pick the right thing. It can't be like, uh, you know, I love your toes. Or <laughs> yeah, like that. that's creepy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, there's a, and there's a tone, too. You yes. know, you have to there's, – there's a lot of factors that get, go into that. And so <laughs> I think you're right. It ends up that so often things end up either actually being creepy or seeming creepy that that's part of why people don't compliment each other. Oh, with work, with your writing, I think it's easier in a lot of ways because that's that's like a professional sort of front you know well, and you're, compl- you're complimenting their mind you're not like reducing them or i think there's just so much i think there's just so much caution especially on the part of women because of the cat calling thing and the reductiveness of you know how they're approached and, and just guys behaving like jackasses but um it is sort of a it's sad to think that like we can't even compliment one another without things getting creepy. <laughs> it's, yeah, you'd have to be very careful. Like maybe if you saw a woman walking down the street and she was carrying a book that you really like, you could say, oh, like that's a really great book. Yeah. You know, but that's, that's not exactly, I mean, sort of complimenting her, but it's really complimenting the book. So it's very, it's very tricky. Okay, but see, but now that I'm married, uh, like what about, because I see people all the time. I, I do want to say stuff. I'm one of those people who wants to say stuff to people, as you might imagine. And mm-hmm. there is a part of me that when I'm walking down the street, to just be like, you look good. You got it going on. Like, just feel confident, you know, <laughs> like, or, or, you know, and I, I don't think I would use that language, but it, you get what I'm saying. And then, yeah. or, or, and it could be a guy or a girl. And, and uh, you know, I could say to somebody, I don't know, I guess like I just want more open communication between strangers. Yeah. I mean, well, it's true. I mean, I live in a city, I don't know exactly how it is in LA, but like, especially in the winter in Boston, people don't make eye contact and they don't make small talk. 
Yeah. In the summer, much more so, and especially in the spring when it, everyone's you know coming out of their hibernation, everyone's sort of happy to see other people. But you know, I think in a lot of big cities, we don't make eye contact with each other, and we don't really. You try and just avoid strangers and like put on your sunglasses and walk away quickly. Right. Um, and I don't. Maybe maybe it would also be different, you know, depending on location. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, compared to Los Angeles, I mean, I, when I go back to where I used to live in Colorado, Colorado's a nice city people are yeah people are nice in denver like they'll smile at you and say hello um you don't get as much of that in la you know and i I know on the east coast you know a city like new york though i do sometimes think like places like new york everyone they're sort of like famous for being gruff and rude and um you know no small talk but i think people in new york very nice you know i think these stereotypes get a little bit uh sometimes they get overemphasized i think it just kind of depends how you come at people I think that's true, and I think it depends also sort of like on where in the city you are, because I've definitely found a lot of people in New York to be very friendly, and not chatty, but not gruff and not unpleasant. And the same thing, I think Boston has a reputation for being rude, and I don't tend to find people rude. I just tend to find them kind of preoccupied. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, everything I never told you. Yes, that's, that's, the that's my book. That's your book. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I think we just scared some listeners for like a beat. They were like, "What? What is he going to say?" So, um, but no, your book. You write this. Uh, you write this thing post MFA, or were you working on it there? I started on it at the very end of my MFA. Um, I thought that it might be a short story, and um, things kept sticking to it. If that makes any sense, like sure. it just, the story kept getting bigger and bigger, um, and Snow- I finally snowballing. figured out it was a novel. Yep. Okay. So, how long did that take you? Uh, it took me just about six years. Um, I mean, there were some gaps. Like, I, you know, after grad school, I was working some odd jobs, and they were taking a lot of time, and I wasn't writing, and I had a baby in the middle and so on. But it took about six years and four drafts. Six years and four drafts. And what's your writing ritual? Um, I wish that I had a more regular one. Um, I used to be much more sort of precious and dainty about it and say, oh, I have to have the right snack, you know, which varied. Sometimes it was like Twizzlers and Cherry Coke. That was the magic combination for a while. And then it was like tea. I'd have Earl Grey tea and it had to be hot, you know. And now I realize that, you know, ever since I had my son, um, I have to be a lot less precious about it. Yes, yes. Um, And I'm finding that sort of liberating. This is not to say that I'm now getting a ton of work done or that the work that I'm getting done is necessarily great, but just that I'm like, all right, I have two hours before I have to go pick him up. Yeah. I got to get working. And, yeah, I get it. Um, so, yeah, now the ritual is basically I sit down at my desk or I grab my laptop and I go sit in the library or sit in a cafe and open up the page and just try and get something on the page. And, yeah, just like, you're making me think of Amy. I just talked to Amy Bender not too long ago. She's got young twins, and she's like – she writes for 10 minutes at a time, like no joke. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's kind of amazing. I had a friend who did that um, when her daughter was born. Um, she and her husband, who was a programmer, and they both worked at home, would switch off in 15-minute shifts. So one of them would work for 15 minutes, and the other one would mind the baby, and then they'd switch. And I could, I had just a hard time imagining that you could get something done, but it worked for her. Yeah, no, I mean, like not only is Amy writing in 10-minute bursts, but she's actually producing material. I mean, albeit slowly, you know, or more slowly than before, but... I just thought that was funny and sort of admirable that, like, you know, even 10 minutes, she's going to squeeze out some some work time. So um, when it comes to, like, the actual business end of things for you, uh, you know, you get your MFA, you have some uh, short story publications, you're working on this novel over the course of six years. Uh, were you represented or did you finish the novel and then go find an agent? Uh, 
Um, so I got lucky, and I found I found an agent um, after I'd published a few short stories. Um, I got a few short stories taken in some places that were really nice. Um, one story being one of them, and um, some agents got saw my story and wrote to me and said, "Hey, do you have any more? Are you working on a novel?" Um, and I got in touch with some of them, let them read the first bits of the novel, and um, sort of found found one that matched. Who and who's your agent? Uh, Julie Bear of Bear Literary, okay. and she's fantastic. I love her. <laughs> All right, and so you, uh, I hear that a lot. Writers love their agents, or they should. They should love their agents. Either that, or it seems like there are a lot of people who are afraid of their agents, and I feel like that's not a good. That's not a good dynamic. Yeah, no. You know, I mean, they're you're, they're often like, if not the first reader, a first reader, and it's a very intimate relationship creatively, and uh, obviously at the level of business. I mean. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's all, it's all, it's a lot like dating. Like, I feel like the that's almost the best analogy. Sort of, you have to be compatible in a lot of different ways. They have to kind of get you and get what you're trying to do in your work. Sometimes, even if you don't get it, they have to be able to see you a little bit better than you do. And at the same time, you have to really trust them. Um, you know, because they're going to advocate for you. They're going to be the ones who are saying, "I think this editor will also get it." You know, so there's a lot of trust and a lot of power in that relationship where you have to be willing to sort of believe that they will act in your best interest, and they have to sort of be able to trust that you will follow their guidance. Yeah. Well, and so, and then when you guys went out with it, like, how did it go? Like, did you have a long wait, or was it a quick sell? It was a whirlwind. It was a quick sell. Um, it was it, so. It was the book was originally supposed to go out um, at the end of October, and um, of tw- the end of twenty thirteen. You mean twenty twenty twelve? So if you think back to October of twenty twelve, that was right when Hurricane Sandy hit. Um, and so I was actually um, on the west coast for uh, my cousin's wedding. Um, so I was out on the West Coast with my family. My father-in-law passed away, and the hurricane hit kind of all like on the same day. And so I actually was stuck on the West Coast because all the flights everywhere basically got canceled. Um, and so my agent was like, we're not sending the book out right now. Like, we're we're going to wait. Um, you know, and everyone kind of, you know, bailed out from the hurricane and started to repair it. And so the book didn't go out until right before Thanksgiving of 2012. And it went out on a Friday, and Julie, my agent, said to me, well, you know, this is where we wait. Sometimes it can be a couple weeks. It might be a couple months. It just depends on when people can get around to it. But, you know, I don't expect that we're going to hear anything. So this is the Friday before Thanksgiving. And Tuesday morning, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, she called me and said, so um, I'm getting some interest, and I think that we should set up some phone calls. So I freaked out. We set up some phone calls for the next week. Thanksgiving happened Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I talked to editors, and then Thursday um, the book went to auction, and we we sold the book. Um, so it was this extremely intense, crazy two week period. Wow. That's exciting. That's exactly what you want to happen though. When you hear the words, it's going to auction, that's about as good as you can hope for. And, and this is, and this is sort of how green I was. I like, she was like, okay, so I'm going to, I think she said like, so I'm going to schedule the auction. And I was like, okay, great, great, great. And then I hung up the phone and I like went to Google and I was like, what is an option? Like I, it, you know, I like didn't. You know, I only had a very general sense of what that was, and so that was one one place where I was so happy to have Julie as my agent because she did a really good job of like walking me through the process when I like confessed to her that I didn't actually know what we were talking about. She like explained to me on a very basic level, but not condescendingly, like, like what it was, what was going to happen, what she was hoping for, and so on, and was just like a complete calming influence, which yes. was great. And and, yeah. and the Xanax didn't hurt either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I had like a lot of hot tea. I think I probably ate more sort of like sugary things that whole week. I was like, yes, I'm eating some chocolate. I'm going to be horrible cliche, but that is going to help. <laughs> 
So, uh, so multi-book deal, are you working on another thing now? Um, so it's just for the one book. Um, I've got most of a collection done. Um, that's sort of on the back burner for right now because, you know, everyone's short story collections sometimes are a hard sell. And I'm working on a second book right now that was an idea that I had while I was finishing up the first book um, and was sort of on hold, and I'm finally sort of getting back into writing mode now. Um, another novel that is, is going to be set in my hometown of Shaker Heights, actually. Um, it's sort of a quirky place, and I'm really excited to set a story there. Wow. Well, it's been uh, it's been so fun talking with you. You're a lot of fun to talk to, and I'm, uh, I congratulate you on Everything I Never Told You, which is your book. Oh, and I also, we should say, too, I mean, not to go to something that you've probably talked about a million times in your life, but the pronunciation of your last name so that listeners can get it right. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes, I'm all in favor of this. Yeah. So it's ing, and what I always tell people is that it's spelled N-G, but it's yeah. pronounced ing like I-N-G. There we go. So There we are. Now people know. Uh, Celeste, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Brad, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I will tell you now, publicly declare my adoration, <laughs> both both for other people podcasts, which I've been a fan of for some time, and then actually for The Nervous Breakdown, which I've been a fan of for much longer. Um, it was one of the first sort of literary websites, writing you know websites that I followed regularly and have, I'm still following now, in fact. So thank you for, for everything that you, you know, have done and continue to do with that. Oh, well, thank you, and uh, best of luck going forward. Thanks so much. All right, guys, there you go. That is Celeste Ng. Great talking with her. Go get her book. It's called Everything I Never Told You. It's available from Penguin. You can find her online at celesteng.com, and uh, you can also follow her over at Twitter, where her handle is at pronounced underscore ing. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this uh, program has its own app. Get that app. It's free. It's available wherever apps are available, whatever device you have. Get the app on your device. It's the easiest way to keep up with this show and to listen to episodes. Uh, you get the free app, and then you have the most recent 50 episodes for free. They'll be there waiting for you. And then if you want to stream the uh, deeper archives, you can sign up for a premium subscription. It's very cheap. It's a couple of bucks a month. You can even pay uh, one payment for an entire year of access, $9 for a year. So, you know, 75 cents a month, support the show. That'd be great. Uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Write to me, tell me what you think, and I will uh, perhaps read your letter on the air and ridicule you. So... Good to see some comedy. Good to be reminded that I like it and that I'm an idiot for not going to see more of it more often. Uh, good to have some relief from the craziness of the news. Though it should be said that I could have relief from the craziness of the news by simply not reading the news. Simply not turning on the television. Though I don't really watch television news. I do read the paper. And I read a little bit online. I gotta stop it. Just fuck it. If the shit really hits the fan, someone will tell me. Why Why do I not? Un this is just like the comedy thing. I know that I love it. It's right here. Why am I such a fool? If the shit really hits the fan, if something seriously bad happens, someone's going to tell me. I don't need the news. Be blissfully uninformed. That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> Had enough. All this fucking clickbait. Stop with the clickbait in a public health crisis. If a woman has three breasts, if a man can hold his breath for an hour and a half, great. Make some clickbait. 
when people are dying of a blood fever, let's not let's not exploit that. So tiresome. So anyway, uh, did you hear some anger in my voice there? That was authentic. It was alpha male behavior. Um, thank you for listening. Oh wait, I gotta tell you, I gotta read my things. Hang on. Hang on. Totally forgot this part. Please remember that Hitler typed with two fingers as did H.L. Mencken, not that those two men are uh, equivalent. And uh, please remember that Moliere was never elected to the French Academy. That, that's a stupid one. Let me read another one. Uh, please remember that uh, <laughs> Lawrence Tibbet died after an automobile crash. And that Newt Hampson, at 25 years old, was told that he had three months to live because of rampant tuberculosis and then died at the age of 93. See, you can survive a uh, terrible illness. That's all for now. Thanks again to Celeste Ng. Thanks to you guys for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode of this program. Uh, I'll be talking to somebody. They'll be talking to me. Uh, hopefully, we'll be having a good exchange that you can then uh, eavesdrop upon and enjoy. That you can consume as entertainment. All right. My daughter's coming home any second now. Dressed as a witch. I gotta go. Must go receive my child. All right. I always try to wait for this song to end. Here we go. We're getting. All right, that's it. <laughs> <laughs>